when we're creating the menus, um, really what we're looking at is what, what do people like? The last thing you want on your first day is a line of people uh, waiting to get in. So you want some time to adjust your processes, your offer, your menu. IPAs are certainly a dominant style within the overall craft beer world. This is the Market Scale Food and Beverage Show, your responsibly sourced B2B content for the world of food and beverages. Each week we'll aim to educate, inform, and inspire with the best thought leadership in the industry. Let's dig in. Thanksgiving's a special time of year where we gather around the table with friends and family to share meals together. Food and drink are so inextricably linked with this holiday season that it's nearly impossible to talk about one without the other. Coming up on this episode of the Food and Beverage Podcast, we'll talk about the food side of Thanksgiving with Chef Andre Natira from Fairmont Austin, the largest luxury hotel in Texas. He'll give us some insight into what it's like to prepare a Thanksgiving menu for a restaurant full of guests. After that, we'll hear from Sam Gooch. He's a brewery sales representative for Left Hand Brewing Company. He's going to talk about the exploding craft beer market and the importance for breweries like Left Hand to have seasonal offerings for their customers. But first, we'll have the Market Scale Food and Beverage News Minutes with Brett Brown, followed by our weekly news analysis piece. This week, we'll be talking to Nidal Baraki about how restaurants can best tackle the busy holiday season. But first, let's hit up those news minutes right now with Brett Brown. Take it away, Brett. Here is your Food and Beverage News Minute, brought to you by Market Scale. With millions of travelers gearing up for their holiday flights, knowing what foods to avoid when flying could help you and your family this season. Experts say that foods such as deli meat, raw vegetables, and even rice are things that you should reconsider eating while you travel due to their inability to consistently store and heat foods at safe temperatures. In the restaurant industry, food is cooked and served without delay, says airline food safety expert Gene Dibble. In the aviation industry, Food is prepared at a catering company and then packed in insulated containers and trucked to airports and put aboard the aircraft. Incorrect holding temperatures are the number one reason for airborne illness on a worldwide basis. To avoid these issues while traveling, stick to safer options such as packaged pretzels, soups, and food that comes from a can or sealed container. It might be the ticket to smooth travels this holiday season. The popular fast food franchise Taco Bell held their first hiring party in India in order to attract job seekers. Those who attended got food, prizes, and the opportunity to interview on the spot. With unemployment rates at record lows, fast food restaurants are struggling to find employees. This new concept is one of many unique ways businesses are trying to attract new talent into their companies. The hiring party is really a play on the old-school job fair that used to take place at colleges or at the restaurants where people came in and gave their resume, said Bjorn Erland, Vice President of Human Resources at Taco Bell. The key was making it interactive and casual, but also, if they wanted to interview and get hired, that was available as well. With the success of their first event and the need to find talent, Taco Bell plans to continue the hiring party program nationally next year. Blockchain technology may be able to tell you the home of this year's Thanksgiving turkey. Consumer demand for knowing where food comes from is stepping into the holiday season, as Cargill has provided customers with tracking codes to learn about the farms of 200,000 of this year's Thanksgiving turkeys. Casey Long, brand manager for Honeysuckle White, understands the growing trend of consumer knowledge in the food and beverage industry. Customers want to know that the people who are raising their turkey are good people. 
Before you gobble up this year's Thanksgiving turkey, take a moment and see if you can learn where your meal came from. I'm sure these local farmers would be thankful for it. I'm Brett Brown, and this has been your Market Scale Food and Beverage Minute. Thanks, Brett. Coming up next for our news analysis piece this week, I talked to Nadal Baraki. He's the founder and director of Glutonomy, and what they do is they help consult restaurants in the areas of business development, strategy, branding, marketing, and so much more. He's known as a connector and influencer in the global food industry. And what I really wanted to learn from him is what advice he would give restaurants at this time of year when it's so busy, when the holiday season can create such a rush, And it can really create such a strain on restaurants when it comes to what do you do with staffing? What kind of menu do you put out? So I wanted to get his advice for restaurants on how exactly they could tackle this tough time of year. So without further ado, let me get to my conversation with Nadal Baraki. Nadal, thank you so much for joining us today on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Hi, Tyler. How are you? My pleasure. I'm doing well. Thank you so much. So this can be a busy and crazy time of year for restaurants. What is your advice uh, for restaurants on how to navigate the holiday season? Yeah, um, the best, of, of, of course, um, first of all, I see many restaurants, uh, that new restaurants that are pushing to open uh, to take advantage of the holidays, which makes total sense. But then again, I recommend them not to open too close to holiday season because the, f- the last thing you want on your first day is a line of people uh, waiting to get in. So you want some time to adjust your processes, your offer, your menu. So one recommendation for new restaurants, try not to open too close to high season. And for existing restaurants, um, one thing that sometimes they struggle with is uh, staffing. So having a strong uh, staff uh, that already knows the processes, the flow of the restaurant, the menu and everything, it's key to, to be able to receive uh, a higher than usual uh, flow of, of visitors. So would you recommend that restaurants hire seasonal staff to help with the uh, influx of, of customers? Or do you think it's best just to rely on the people that you, that you know, that you can rely on, that know the processes like you mentioned? Well, actually, you need to do both. You need to, like the main operation needs to be uh, run by people who know the restaurants, who know the processes, who know the menu and everything. But then, of course, you will need extra staff, uh, both uh, front of the house and the kitchen, to... I mean, to be able to deliver to a to a bigger audience. So from what you've seen, is it a good strategy for restaurants to be open on Thanksgiving Day and, and other holidays, you know, that specific day? Well, it d- depends on, on the city. Um, like, were cities with populations like family-oriented cities or where the population is not as, as young, I would recommend not to open on Thanksgiving uh, a day because most of the people want to share with families and everything but then the the rest of the weekend tends to be very busy so i'd recommend like if you need to give a day off to your staff and everything i would suggest to give um thanksgiving off and then try to to work on on the weekend menus and it's very we see very commonly like restaurants having a brunch on friday after thanksgiving or Saturday and Sunday, of course. So I would focus on on the weekend after Thanksgiving. If a restaurant came to you and they asked, uh, Nadal, should we should we serve a special, you know, Thanksgiving inspired meal, or should we stick to what we do best? How would you how would you advise them in that circumstance? I'd advise them to stick to what they do best because you want uh, maybe you're getting visitors that you don't usually get during the normal. 
uh, days or seasons. So if they visit you on that specific day, you want to show them what you do best, what's your offer, what's your food uh, is like. So I would suggest uh, to stick to what you do best and use this opportunity to show them uh, your philosophy, your your menu, your style of, of cooking. So part of what you do at Glutonomy that I think you do an amazing job of is you help restaurants brand themselves well and help them stand out above the crowd. And nowadays, uh, just with so many different websites and the internet, just with a quick Google search, you have a thousand restaurants all at your fingertips. How are you helping restaurants really stand out above the crowd? Well, one, one key thing from the technical point of view, you mentioned uh, Google. Um, that that's something that needs to be done no matter what, which is have an optimized uh, website and social media for strong to have a strong SEO, and that's that's not gonna help you uh, do better than the rest, but at least will put you in the same level as everybody else. And then, and once people find you, you have to search what's your uh, why, what's your purpose, what makes you special or different or unique, and focus on on those values to to communicate your offer, your philosophy. So having a purpose, having a strong why is key for everything else that goes with communication strategy. Yeah, and having that uh, having that strong purpose really gives your, your restaurant a backbone and gives it a personality that really can help uh, communicate exactly what you're all about and, and why people should uh, should come visit. I think that's I think that's a great point. What are some trends that you're seeing in the restaurant industry these days that act, that are exciting you that, that make you uh, excited to be a part of it? Well, um, one nice thing that I've seen is uh, like being local and sustainable is not already it's not anymore. Uh, like a fancy or different thing. It's like very common, which is great that it has become mainstream or no matter what restaurant you go, you expect them to be sustainable, to be responsible to with what they buy or who they buy from. So that having seen this go from a, like a niche to a mainstream uh, uh, feature, that's, that's very exciting. And also going to the roots of, of local uh, recipes of traditions that's also very very exciting like trying to to go back to heirloom crops to to ancient recipes and it's very exciting to see restaurants having uh, new takes on on old uh, old traditions yeah that's a great point because it's it's really good to, uh, to to get that sense of uh, this is what a restaurant really does. This is what they do best, and and to have that connection to a certain culture, I think really uh, can be communicated through food. And I think that's a really exciting thing in the industry these days. Yeah, the the good thing what and uh, what I also mean like before, like some years ago, being farm to table was like maybe a flag you would uh, uh, raise because you are different and and responsible. Now everybody should be farm to table, everybody should be local, everybody should be seasonal. Yeah, absolutely. That is Nidal Baraki. He is the founder and director of Glutonomy. Nidal, thank you so much for the time this morning. No, thank you, Tyler. Thanks again to Nidal Baraki for joining us on this week's episode of the Food and Beverage Podcast presented by MarketScale. 
Coming up next is my conversation with Chef Andre Natera. He's the executive chef at Fairmont Austin. And I wanted to talk to him because food is so much more than just what we eat. It's also a big part of who we are. It's a big part of culture and history. And when people sit down for Thanksgiving dinner, they're often transported back in time to their family's table, surrounded by their loved ones, with their grandmothers cooking on the table. And for many chefs, this presents quite a challenge of how exactly do you replicate that meal that people remember in their minds uh, from their past that's so connected to who they are? Uh, how do you replicate that on a large scale at a restaurant for a lot of people. So I had him explain the process for how exactly you put a menu together. Uh, how do you spice some things up or do you leave things the same way? What exactly do you do to tackle this challenge? And he provided some really great insight. Also gave us some tips on how you can best prepare your turkey this Thanksgiving so you got the best possible bird to serve your family. All of that is coming up in my interview with Chef Andre Natera. So let's get to that interview right now. Chef, thank you so much for joining us on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast today. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're going to be serving a Thanksgiving buffet on Thanksgiving Day at the Fairmont Austin. What all is going to be on the menu for that? Geez. So for our Thanksgiving buffet, I mean, we'll have all the classics. We'll have the, the turkey, the stuffing, um, you know, er- everything that everyone's looking for. But uh, in, in addition to that, we'll also um, offer some a la carte brunch items as well. It's a really exciting uh, time to get to bring people together in this way. So how did you go about assembling the menu for a holiday like this? You know, everybody has in their mind, you know, what should be on a Thanksgiving Day menu. You know, and maybe that varies from person to person to a certain extent. But how did you, you know, go through the process of saying this is going to be on the menu, this isn't going to be on the menu? Uh, you know, when we're looking at Thanksgiving menus and we're in the creative process, you know, I, I work with uh, my, my right-hand man, uh, Atticus, who's uh, executive uh, chef here of the restaurants. And so when we're creating the menus, um, really what we're looking at is what, what do people like? What do people want for Thanksgiving? So we go for, you know, the traditional things, the turkey, uh, the ham, um, you know, your, your traditional uh, uh, desserts, you know, the pumpkin pie and things like that. But we also want to incorporate some things that are maybe not so traditional that people can have a little bit of fun with um, that maybe represent the local market. So, for example, on our uh, Thanksgiving buffet, we'll also have uh, brisket. Um, you know, so it's a Texas regional thing, you know, that, uh, that we'll have brisket. So, so just offering up not just the traditional items, but also op- offering something that's also regional. So how do you take something like turkey, which is, an, I, I would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, not often prepared by chefs, uh, you know, too often just on a dinner menu or something like that. How do you take something like turkey and then turn it into something worthy of being served at the Fairmont Austin? Well, I think I think the biggest mistake a lot of cooks make when they're, when they're cooking turkey, um, one, is that... Uh, they, they don't treat the bird properly when they get it from, from the store. So they might cook it it's still slightly frozen. It's not fully thawed. Um, maybe they don't sit it in a brine, which will help uh, you know add more moisture to the turkey. Um, and then maybe they'll cook it at a temperature that's too hot, which will end up, you know, uh, you know, drying out the turkey a little bit. So, so some critical things when we're talking about turkey, you know, if I could give people advice at home is uh, make sure your turkey's fully thawed, uh, brine it if you can overnight, um, and then cook it at a lower temperature. That's great advice. Is there anything else that maybe people preparing Thanksgiving dinner at home should know? Any other common mistakes you see made around this time of year? Um, yeah, I would say that the, the, the biggest thing is, is, uh, it, it's, it's probably the turkey, but it's, it's also understanding that that the turkey is going to cook uh, and it needs time. Um, 
And so you don't want to rush it. You don't want to turn your oven up so hot because you're getting impatient and everyone's hungry um, because that will yield a more dry product if you if you rush it. So I would say that's probably the most important thing when it comes to cooking the turkey. Um, the other thing is uh, an understanding that for me at least, Thanksgiving's all about the sides, right? I mean, I love turkey, but it's about the sides. It's about the stuffing, the mashed potatoes, the gravy. Um, you, you know, normally that's what I fill up on myself. <laughs> so knowing how to make those extremely well also and taking your time, you maybe have fewer sides and make them better than have so many sides that are just kind of mediocre would be, uh, you know, the advice I'd give. That you've heard it here from a professional chef, turn on the football game and let the turkey cook. Have patience. Have patience. So I think everybody has in their mind uh, what Thanksgiving means to them. You know, I think a lot of times uh, food isn't just what we eat. It's a window into people's culture. It's a window into people's history. You know, everyone remembers their grandmother or their mother preparing Thanksgiving Day uh, meals. How do you make sure that that soul and that uh, that heart also kind of comes along with the food that you're preparing? Uh, you know, for for a grand group of people, uh, for a large group of people, how do you make sure that that uh, that heart is still there uh, when you're preparing food for for such a large group? Well, I, I think um, when we're talking about you know people's you know their grandmothers this or their mothers that, normally those those recipes kind of err on the side of, of simpler. So, you know, for example, everyone uh, loves the, uh, the the canned fried onions that they put on top of their green bean casserole or something like that, that maybe also calls for a can of mushroom soup. So taking those ideas and understanding that that's, that's really what people are craving on Thanksgiving is, is uh, not the creative version of what they know, but the version that they know and that they love, right? So when it comes to pumpkin pie, give them a real pumpkin pie. Don't give them, you know, a version of pumpkin pie that's, uh, you know, coming out from a different angle. So I I think being able to deliver on the basics um, is probably the most important thing. So that'll resonate with people with what they grew up on. So uh, I'm I'm pretty used to uh, when you dump out the cranberry sauce out of the can, you know it's it still uh, maintains the shape of the can. You know that's that's the history I'm coming from. So uh, so I I understand what you mean. In your opinion, and this is just purely your opinion, what's the best pie for Thanksgiving? The best pie for Thanksgiving <laughs> is pumpkin pie, hands down for me. Um, oh, yeah. I, I do love pecan pie and I love apple pie, um, but for me pumpkin pie that. And if I was going to eat pumpkin pie at home, um, you know, uh, my wife is cooking, so she she asked to buy pumpkin pies uh, because she doesn't know how to bake them, and that's okay. But I told her to make sure she bought Cool Whip uh, just because that's the way I ate it when I was a kid. So um, buy buy some Cool Whip and eat that with your pumpkin pie because to me that's that's the flavor that I grew up with. Absolutely. That's uh, that's what everybody remembers. So one of the things that you love about your job in particular is that you have the opportunity to mentor young chefs. So how can you use an opportunity like Thanksgiving um, on Thursday as an opportunity, as a, as a teaching moment, as a teaching opportunity for some of the younger chefs that are, uh, that are under, your, uh, under your supervision? Well, you know, that's a great question. The majority of the team that works here, um, a, a lot of them are internationals. A lot of them aren't uh, American. So the, uh, Thanksgiving is a bit unfamiliar to them. You know, a lot of people have come from the Philippines or India or Mexico or Canada. Um, and I know Canadians have Thanksgiving also. Um, but the, the American Thanksgiving is slightly different and we celebrate it. Uh, and so it's an opportunity to introduce them to a different culture. It's an opportunity to share a meal with them. 
um, and show them some warmth and hospitality. So when we talk about mentoring, uh, just exposing them to this, I think, is a, is a, it's a great gesture of goodwill. And that's really what Thanksgiving's all about. Yeah, absolutely. And w- when you think about, uh, you know, the mentoring process and, and, you know, people looking up to other people, uh, in your process of, of growing as a chef, uh, now you've been doing this for, for over two decades, uh, who did you look up to, you know, a, as you were coming up in the, uh, in the culinary world? Um, early on in the culinary world, I would say, um, you know, I, I, I really got into watching a television program called Great Chefs of the World or Great Chefs of America, I think. Um, and it was, it was all these European and, and, and uh, uh, chefs and some American chefs, you know, just demonstrating techniques. And I would watch that. And, you know, growing up, I was, I was uh, mesmerized by these chefs, these French chefs that were, uh, you, you know, uh, um, Daniel Boulud uh, or um, Jean Georges, you know these these guys were were icons. Um, and then I would say, as I got a little bit older, I would say that I probably uh, really was fascinated early on in my career by Charlie Trotter um, and Thomas Keller, um, and I would say still to this day, you know, big influences. Um, the, these were the heroes, you know, Wolfgang Puck, also Dean Faring, you know, the, these people were giants, um, and I was. I was studying their every move back then. You know, we were, we didn't have the internet, so you know, we were looking at cookbooks and reading magazines that they would be in, trying to just get a little bit of their essence that we could bring back to our kitchens. Uh, so, if people are interested in uh, visiting the Fairmont Austin for Thanksgiving dinner, uh, where can they go to get more information, and and how how can they go about uh, y- you know being there and 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 getting to attend uh, this fabulous meal that you're going to be preparing? Uh, well, we have Thanksgiving uh, brunch, or, or I'm sorry, Thanksgiving meal in uh, in our restaurant <laughs> review, and it's from uh, 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. Our last seating's at 6 p.m. Um, please. Uh, make a reservation. You can make a reservation online. Um, and uh, we'd, we'd love to host people. We have a, we have a great brunch. We have everything from, uh, uh, like I said, we have turkey, uh, we have ham, we have chicken, we're going to have brisket, uh, we're going to have salmon as well. We're going to have a ton of a ton of desserts, every pie, you know, even pumpkin pie, pecan pie, apple pie, um, as well as some others, you know, some other pies, banana cream and chest pie. Uh, we'll have all the traditional sides, um, plus a little bit more of everything in terms of cheese and charcuterie, bread, um, and, and, uh, and our raw bar. So uh, not traditional, but we'll definitely have Thanksgiving oysters and shrimp cocktail as well. I gotta love that uh, you know the, the the twists you know like having the brisket on the menu because I know for me you know we'll do Thanksgiving with my family Thanksgiving with my wife's family you know extended families and all that stuff and after three or four straight meals of turkey you know some brisket uh, a raw bar that sort of thing that's uh, that's a fantastic twist that uh, that I know that I in particular uh, would really love if I if I were there uh, for Thanksgiving dinner there around the table at the uh, at the Fairmont yeah I, I think so and um, you know we're in Texas so. Why not? Let's serve them brisket as well. So <laughs> turkey's not everyone's cup of tea. I love it. I love it. And that just brings that Texas flair, a little bit of that uh, soul of Texas to the table. That is Andre Natera. He's the executive chef at Fairmont Austin, the largest luxury hotel in Texas. Thank you so much for the time today, sir, for the uh, Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here again. Thanks again to Chef Andre Natira for joining us for this week's food and beverage episode. For my last interview of this week's episode, it's going to be with Sam Gooch. He's a brewery sales representative with Left Hand Brewing Company in Longmont, Colorado. And I really wanted to talk to Sam because as the craft beer market has really taken off in recent years and some of these breweries have grown in size, they've lost some of that dexterity in the market that really made them popular to begin with. Craft breweries have been synonymous with seasonal offerings and special you know, Christmas beers and summer beers and that sort of thing. But as their production 
production has grown, it's become harder and harder for some of these breweries to offer those special offerings. So I wanted to talk to Sam about how Left Hand has still continued to be able to churn out some of those special offerings uh, for the fall and for the holiday seasons. And then I also wanted to get a sense of how Left Hand has grown from a company that started off in a small meatpacking building to be one of the top 50 craft breweries in the country today. So all of that is coming up next in my interview with Sam Gooch. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today on the Food and Beverage Podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me, Tyler. Absolutely. So you work for Left Hand Brewing there in Colorado, and uh, it's an interesting story about how uh, you guys got started. I-, I was wondering if you could tell me more about the story of how the brewery grew from just being you know, one of the founders having a home brew kit to uh, where it is today, where it's consistently in the top 50 of the uh, largest craft breweries in the, uh, in the United States. Oh, you know, uh, so kind of a fun story. Um, you know, both uh, Eric Wallace and Dick Dorr, who are our co-founders, uh, started the brewery back in 1993. Um, you know, just like you said, off of a, off of a home kit, a home brew kit. And, uh, you know, really it kind of got started from there and you know, really wanted to, you know, dive into the craft beer world um, because way back in 1993, you know, the, the craft beer world wasn't quite what it is today. Um, and, you know, we've, we've certainly scaled, um, but, you know, we are still in the same location that we have been since 1993. Um, so that's, you know, a point of, you know, pride for us um, and, you know, really scaled up and, you know, tried to stay current and, um, you, know, uh, you know, offering, you know, a wide variety of beers that, you know, consumers will like. Absolutely. And so you've you've kind of seen just even in your time there at Left Hand, uh, the market change a little bit. You mentioned scale earlier, but uh, the, the marketplace for craft beer is becoming one that's increasingly more congested just as more people hear the story of how, you know, how Left Handed's founders, uh, you know, got their start just with a homebrew kit. More and more people hear that and they think, hey, that's something that, uh, that I'm interested in that maybe I could do as well. How have you seen the marketplace change and, and how does Left Hand continue to separate itself in what is increasingly a more and more crowded marketplace well you know i think that we try to you know stay stay current um partly because you know we kind of zigged in the world of zags as far as you know um, ipas are certainly a dominant um uh, a dominant style within the overall craft beer world um whereas like our biggest seller is milk salt nitro um really one of the you know first widely available nitro beers um american made um, in the United States. Um, so, you know, we've really been able to, to, to grow that brand. Um, and, you know, it's taken us to a, a numerous amount of markets um, and even overseas with that beer. I mean, the demand for that is, is still relatively high. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, with our expansion upon that particular, you know, portfolio for us is what's been able to keep us current and what, you know, the consumer really tries to, you know, seek out for us is, you know, what new nitro is going to be available. Um, and I think that's, you know, you know, is what, uh, what the consumer wants. They, they want something new all, all the time. And, um, you know, that's, you know, certainly a hard part for us being, you know, a little bit on the larger size and, and brewing on a larger system. Um, so you have to, you know, be a little, a little bit more cognizant of, you know, trying to make something good, something that's going to impact the market in a positive way, especially positive for us, um, where we can't just, you know, kind of throw anything into a, you know, a, a brew kettle and expect, you know, expect instant success. Um, so there's, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, kind of development on our end to try and figure out what, you know, we think is going to be the next big thing, um, but still relying, you know, 
on beers that have gotten us to, uh, where we are today. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the the seasonal beer market has become one that's that's getting bigger and bigger, right? Like the the ones that come out, you know, for Christmas or you know, s- special summer beers and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering uh, if you have any idea how far out in advance uh, Left Hand begins planning for those particular seasons that you know are going to come out, you know, uh, around Christmas time or Thanksgiving or something like that. I, so I'm already pretty aware of what we have going on. It's, uh, all, you know. For next year or for 2019, uh, I'm I'm already aware of what our portfolio is going to shape up to be. Um, you know, that's planning that you know almost takes place six months into it. You know, into before the next year. So there's all sorts of planning meetings that'll be going on. I can't say that I'm particularly part of a lot of those planning meetings, but you know, we're looking at styles, we're looking at trends, and you know, trying to find, um, you know particular aspects of those that are going to suggest what we might want to do for the upcoming year. So you mentioned earlier the uh, the nitro milk stout, which is absolutely one of my favorite beers. I love I'm I'm a porter and stout type of type of drinker, anyways. I love the the heavy dark beers. Um, but you guys have a seasonal one of those right now, is that right? Yes, yes. We uh, we currently have a chai milk stout nitro available. Interesting. And so is, is that more of kind of have the, the fall flavor and that sort of thing? So it kind of goes into the planning that you were talking about earlier that six months ago, you guys were planning on maybe doing a chai one that, that has kind of like that, that fall October type, type of uh, flavor profile. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, you know, we initially actually had it uh, available in the late winter. Um, and then, you know, just kind of, as, as I was talking about kind of developing our portfolio going into the next year, and really trying to, you know, capture, um, you know, the different seasonal styles. Um, you know, I think for lack of not doing like your pumpkin type of beer or any, you know, real kind of Christmas ale, the chai really kind of captures both the fall and the early winter, especially going, you know, with the with the spice profile that it has. Um, so, you know, for this time of year, I absolutely love it. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, I definitely had a few of those at our Nitro Fest this past weekend. Um, so it's, you know, it's one that I think, you know, really accents like any sort of meal, um, pretty well. Um, and then too, if, you know, you want to finish your night with a, with a beer, chai milk, salt nitro is, is absolutely fantastic for that. I need to get my hands on some of that. I have not, I have not tried it yet. So that's going to be a, that's going to be a must for me. I want to go back and talk a little bit more about the milk stout nitro, um, because uh, not only is it a great beer, but it also created a little bit of history when it was introduced back in 2011. Is that right? Yes, that's right. What was it about it in particular that was historic, um, and, and how exactly did that beer come about? Um, you know, it, it basically came about because you know we had milk stout nitro on on our taps, but you know you can only you know let's see the consumers are really only going to go to the in the bar when they want to go to the bar. They aren't you know necessarily going to you know, seek it out all the time, but, you know, in the space of, of grocery and, you know, your off premise world, um, having that beer available is, is huge. Um, I mean, that's, that's a a dominant part of the overall market is just off premise beer sales. Um, so ultimately what happened is that we were the first ones to create a completely widgetless nitro beer. Um, so, you know, our big thing here is you pour hard. Right. So, uh, let's get into that pour a little bit because you have a video on your website kind of explaining how, uh, you're supposed to pour the nitro and it's, it's so unique when you see 
a beer poured this way, you know, yeah, typically, you know, you, you tip the glass sideways and, you know, you kind of pour a beer along the side of the glass and that sort of thing. That's not how the nitro works. Not at all. Um, in fact, it is, you know, I've, you know, been selling left hand for close to five years now. So, uh, you know, it's kind of one of my favorite things to do as far as selling that and demoing that beer uh, for folks that may not have had it before. Um, you know, I come from the Virginia, D.C. and Maryland market. Um, so it's a little bit different uh, there than it is in Colorado. Um, but it, it really is great because it kind of scares the hell out of people. Um, because like you said, people are really, uh, really, you know, have it ingrained in their minds that you always tilt the glass to the side and, you know, you do kind of a slow pour in there and you get this really nice head and milk cell nitro completely throws all of that con- conceptual like beer pouring out of the window because you quite literally dump it upside down into a, into a pint glass. Um, and that's, you know, that's really kind of where the magic happens. Um, and like you said, like you, you get this really nice cascade down the sidewalls of the glass um, and it creates this just beautiful, tasty beverage. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 really, really cool to watch. If you haven't done it before, you got to go pick one up and, and do it. Just do the hard pour, go all out with it because it's, it's 100% worth it. Now you can even get uh, those uh, milk stat nitros in cans too, I, I believe. Is that right? That is correct. So with Thanksgiving coming up, you know, I'm going to be going out to my in-laws, you know, and seeing family and all that stuff. And I'm going to need to take some beer with me when I go visit different people. Um, What would you recommend as far as what Left Hand has available that you think would be great to pair with a Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, Well, you know, I always got to throw Milk Salt Nitro in there because, you know, when you take a six pack, you know, and, you know, really kind of depending on how big your family is, I think it's a really cool experience to have everyone kind of sit around the table and, you know, dump dump a bottle of Milk Salt Nitro into your pint glass. Um, You know, it certainly is a a good way to get some conversation started amongst your family. Um, You know, but as as far as other beers, um, I'm a sucker for traveling light because it's really super easy drinking. Um, and just a, another tasty beer that we make. Um, my, you know, other, other favorite favorites, I would say, I have to say some saisons just because saisons typically go really well with like a nice hearty Thanksgiving meal. Um, and we currently have a midnight wheat saison available. So, you know, that's, 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 and that's kind of more, I guess, kind of my, my traditional take on a Thanksgiving dinner is usually a saison, um, or, you know, I mean, you know, we can really even go like IPAs. IPAs are, you know, pretty much, you know, I think such a such a widely approachable beverage at, at this point in time. And they kind of dominate the the spear or the, the realm of beer. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I tend to go more towards the towards the dark stuff. So I'm, I'm going to grab me a, you know, maybe a nitro milk stout or something along those lines and, and rock and roll at uh, Thanksgiving this year. Uh, so... Any chance you could give us a preview of what's going to come up in 2019? Um, t- 2019. So, um, we, you know, we actually have debuted the, uh, the portfolio. Um, you know, so that, that is available now. Actually, if you check our Instagram, it's on there. And I believe probably Facebook too. Um, but we're really looking forward to the return of Hardwired Nitro, um, which is our Nitro coffee porter. And that'll be out in the very beginning of the year. Um, we always get really stoked on St. Patrick's Day as well, you know, obviously just milks out nitro. Um, but with right around that time frame, we're looking for Flamingo Dreams, which is actually going to be a uh, nice uh, blonde blonde ale 
on nitro with uh, a little bit of black currant in there too. So really kind of stoked on that beer. Um, it should be super, you know, kind of get us ready for spring and going into summer. Um, and then we'll also have a mandarin lime uh, nitro beer that'll be available too called Push Pop Party. That sounds awesome for summertime. Yeah, you know, we're, that's, you know, like like you said earlier, you got to really expand on kind of your seasonal seasonal space. And we're really looking forward to doing that in uh, 2019 with our nitro portfolio that's going to be coming out. It sounds like y'all are doing a good job of, even though you're you're big in terms of size for a craft brewery, still remaining nimble enough to produce some of these seasonal beers that uh, you know that, that smaller breweries are able to kind of crank out at a higher rate because they're they're smaller, so they don't have nearly the production as left hand. Uh, but you guys are still able to to crank out a quality product um, over you know a, 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 a large number of beers. Yes, that's yeah. You know it's. It's really cool, you know, to see because I, I think that, you know, like you said, we, you know, have a lot of beers, but we've been able to uh, maintain, you know, a pretty nice portfolio of uh, seasonal beers. Um, and, and people are always a little bit amazed too when they come here because we, we don't really have this kind of, you know, large scale look to ourselves. Um, you know, we're still in the same place that we've been in been since 1993. It's a meatpacking plant, right? Or a former meatpacking plant? <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah, you can, it it is a former uh, meatpacking plant and um if, if you ever take the tour, one of the first uh stops along the way is to see where uh where the um where I guess the pigs, I think is what they used, they used to take them down one of our hallways. Um, which, you know, it's obviously, it's all been kind of retrofitted, um, to create a brewery space, but the, the tour is, is incredible. The folks in our tasting room do a fantastic job of, of really telling our history, um, and of the building of the space, you know, you know, some of our hardships that we've had in the past, um, you know, back in 2000, 2013, we almost, uh, lost the brewery for, from some pretty gnarly flooding that happened out here, um, you know, so it, it, it's really, it's really cool just, you know, seeing, you know, the, just the overall uh, space that we're in um, because we've really been able to, you know, just kind of grow from one then from this, you know, really tiny, what used to be a meatpacking uh, building to now, you know, a, a top 50 brewery in the country. Yeah, it's, it's a really incredible evolution and in the way you guys have been able to do it has been, has been really awesome. And uh, it looks like there are some benefits to visiting the brewery in person, like some uh, some exclusive beers there in the uh, in the tasting room, like you mentioned, and also getting the tour and everything like that. So if people can head up to Longmont, uh, they'll have a good time uh, getting to check out the brewery. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I always mention that you know it, it's so worth you know if you ever come to Colorado to check out Left Hand um, because we do have a lot of things that never really actually ever see. Um, see it to the market um specifically you know most recently we did a 20 our 25th anniversary so we celebrated 25 years in uh late september um we actually did a 25th anniversary imperial stout um but as a tasting room exclusive we did uh we rum barrel aged it and then also put it on nitro and I can tell you, it was it was quite a delight to uh, have that beer. <laughs> that sounds that sounds pretty phenomenal. Well, that is Sam Gooch, beer expert and brewery sales rep for Left Hand Brewing Company in Longmont, Colorado. Sam, thank you for the time today. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, Alex. 
That is going to do it for this week's episode of the Food and Beverage Podcast presented by MarketScale. For more great content at MarketScale, head over to MarketScale.com. There you can search our industries and really find what interests you and find more great content along these same lines. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving holiday. May the food and drink be plentiful and awesome around your tables this Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Tyler Kern. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.